Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. So welcome everybody to um, our first um, joint panel session of uh, today on the um, not insubstantial theme of politics and work. Um, and I think um, uh, we should, uh, I certainly consider myself very honoured to be chairing a panel with uh, such a range of um, uh, excellent speakers with such a wide range of experience and interest um, across not only politics and work, but political work um, and the politics of work, um, which I think is uh, uh, really interesting and across a range of perspectives as um, countries and um, experiences. So first of all, I would like to um, welcome Dr. Farah Mikla to uh, speak and uh, Dr. Mikla is a British Sri Lankan human rights activist as well as a um, academic currently working at the University of uh, Exeter uh, with a wide range of uh, experience writing human rights reports in a range of countries and for um, a number of organizations from NGOs to um, the UNHCR. So I'm very pleased to uh, invite uh, Dr. Mikla to speak and um, yes, please. Thank you very much. It's a very rare occasion. My surname has been pronounced perfectly. <laughs> I'm, I'm very impressed. Uh, thank you to the organizers uh, for inviting me, for organizing this. I'm very honored to be part of this panel. Um, having grown up in a conflict-affected country and primarily worked for most of my life on conflict settings in my presentation, I want to draw from these experiences, combining them with my interest and expertise in human rights and the rights of minority communities. Sri Lanka, my country of origin, produced the world's first woman prime minister in 1971, and like her neighbors, India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh, have been governed by very, very influential and powerful women heads of states, but this has translated into little in terms of women's broader political representation. The Sri Lankan parliament has less than 5% women representation, and amidst many challenges in January this year, the country for the first time implemented a 25% quota for women's representation in local government bodies, despite Sri Lanka's quite high social development indicators. It was one of the last countries in South Asia to do this, and it took women's groups up to 20 years of a struggle to be able to achieve this. So I certainly appreciate the great victories women have made in politics through this century, and I believe that they should be acknowledged, commemorated, and celebrated, but in this presentation, in the few minutes I have, we're trying to stick to 10 minutes, um, I want to focus on some of the stories and issues women in marginalized communities face in politics and work that don't always make it into our media headlines and discourses. While we know that women across the world face patriarchal barriers to participation in politics and work, at times violence, and of course hate speech and hate crime, there are multiple dimensions of these issues. And in some contexts, the nature of the threat and all the severity of the obstacles they face can be difficult to imagine and understand when we are outside of that specific context. Um, what I thought I'd try to do is think through the questions the chair has given us broadly to look at. Um, by drawing on my research and work with ethnic, religious, and linguistic minorities, for example, um, Shia and Christian communities in Pakistan, Bedouin women in Israel, Maasai women in Kenya, oppressed castes in uh, India, Nepal, and of course from Sri Lanka. Now, I think the topic of politics and work are huge, right, to cover, and women's experience in both of them are very different, and I don't, I'm going to struggle to do this in 10 minutes. So what I'm going to probably do is just give you some bullet points, and then we can try to discuss them later. Um, 
so let me move on to the first broad area she asked us to look at, which is the main improvements, changes in uh, gender equality in the last decades. Now, at the onset, I should say, my research is mainly on women and not on gender, and I certainly don't want to be conflating the terms, so I'll mainly speak about women. I'm also not convinced that equality should be our benchmark. I'd prefer to look at perhaps something on the lines of the full realization of women's rights, but we can discuss that later. Um, so the main achievements, I would say, for me foremost, coming from this human rights background, is the immense body of international laws that have come into being in the last few decades to protect and promote the rights of women, from the Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women to the 1325 plus resolutions on women in terms of conflict and peace building. Now, while there are many obstacles, undoubtedly, to the implementation of these laws and regulations, and they arguably operate within a patriarchal international legal system, nevertheless, they offer international and national women's rights campaigners and activists so much scope to hold their governments responsible, uh, at least those governments that have signed up to these declarations and conventions, and those that haven't can be named and shamed. Countless times, I can't name the amount of times, I have been frustrated at the meaninglessness of these legal frameworks in conflict-affected settings, especially in the face of powerful perpetrators of gender violence who operate in impunity and have threatened those of us who raise these issues. But I have also been part of campaigns and watched community-level activists hold their governments to account using these frameworks, and I think this cannot be undermined. Secondly, I would say the late yet important recognition of intersectionality as an issue in gender equality in international and some national legal frameworks, policy research, and to some extent in practice. In the last few decades, um, from the founding work of women like Gita and Neera, we have begun to make progress in understanding and analyzing how the intersection with, for instance, race, ethnicity, religion, caste, class, age, disability, and gender problematizes equality and how diverse and different women's quest for equality can be. I've also found in my work that women are finding new spaces for themselves, including on social media and online, and creating cultures and contexts where they can challenge patriarchy and male power structures. Now, I won't say that these spaces are increasing, but I think women are creating unusual and interesting spaces, from WhatsApp groups to parliamentary committees, at times in very difficult and threatening circumstances, particularly in the conflict settings that I've worked in. So I can recall, for example, Bedouin women who organized themselves to challenge their, first their tribal leaders, and then, of course, the Israeli government to fight for justice uh, for their communities. So moving on to the second aspect we were asked to look at, which is the, the key outstanding changes that are needed. My list is quite wide here, identifying and removing obstacles to women at decision-making positions internationally and nationally, more states adopting and ratifying international laws into their own legal systems. Uh, there remains a lot of work that needs to be done to change attitudinal and cultural framing of women and barriers that affect their full participation in work and politics. Now, on the issue of work, I think that, from, again, from the human rights position, the general neglect of socioeconomic rights compared to political and civil rights by states and international actors, including human rights organizations, I would say, is particularly problematic and it affects women. Uh, and much more needs to be done to strengthen socioeconomic rights frameworks and interlink it with women's rights. Um, on work, again, I think that women continue to maintain domestic, it's interesting listening to the previous presentation, and I was just thinking, 
in some of the countries I've been to and work in and in the conflict areas of Sri Lanka particularly, these things are just still happening. This is, there's no, it's not something of the past. It's not, it doesn't take a historian to, to, re to recognize it. So I think that women continue to maintain and domestic, uh, maintain domestic care roles while having to take on additional work and there is very limited recognition and compensation for that. Um, for like domestic work, work in the private sphere, unrecognized and unaccounted for labor. So for example, the women who help in the local farms to, uh, to pick the onions or to in the paddy fields who then don't, their, their labor is just not recognized or you often see women selling vegetables from their homes on the sides of, their of the main roads. Those things don't even make it into the economic figures. If you take Sri Lanka, Interestingly, talking about GDP and economic statistics, our three biggest income earners, the, the economy of the country depends on, number one, remittance of foreign workers, majority of whom are housemaids in the Middle East, women. Number two, the great brand of Ceylon tea that we all enjoy and drink, women are tea pickers. And number three, the wonderful clothes that we buy from the big companies in, in the West, sewn by women garment workers, all of who work in appalling conditions at the lowest economic levels um, for the three biggest names and biggest industries of the country. But to answer, answer this question broadly on the outstanding changes that needed, I'm going to be, I'm, I think I'm heading into slightly problematic territory here. I want to illustrate a recent example to help capture one area where I think change is needed. When the Me Too movement was making the news, I was doing field research in the former conflict-affected areas in northern Sri Lanka, where there are many allegations of wartime and post-war atrocities, including rape and sexual assault, conducted by the Sri Lankan military, and a corresponding increase in sexual violence against women in homes and neighborhoods and communities, including sexual bribery for access to resources. Now, I was quite torn apart by, on one hand, the justifiable accomplishment of the movement and the momentum it gained compared with, on the other hand, the dense hopelessness and suffering of women in the conflict-affected areas in Sri Lanka. Though perpetrators of crime, the triumphalist Sri Lankan military seems indestructible, engaging in civilian, and, uh, civilian administration and present in the neighborhoods and communities where victims have really no escape from them. While there have been some landmark cases where women have taken military personnel to court, the Me Too movement never properly reached northern Sri Lanka, and I think if it did, it would have been unthinkable, even unimaginable, and probably extremely dangerous for women there to attempt to join such a movement. It frustrated and pained me not only that these realities, which are not isolated, considering the amount of conflicts we know of in the world, that they barely make it into the discussions around the movement and seem to remain generally invisible, even in feminist debate and analysis around the subject, or at least what I was reading of while I was there. This brought, me, brought home to me what I feel remains a perennial problem in feminist and women's movement, how class continues to be a divisive factor. The reason I am here presenting at this event is partly because I've had a privileged enough education and come from a certain background, right? Other representatives we hear and see even from marginalized groups are still women who have some elite status. There are indeed exceptions. I have met many activists representing non-dominant castes or low-income marginalized groups at international events, at conferences, articulating their problems, fighting for their rights. 
But I believe that in international and national women's movements for equality, there is still very much a gap where the experiences and realities of a specific group of women aren't fully reflected. So to, I would like to quote an article written by my friend and feminist Sarala Emanuel about the journey of one woman candidate who contested in the recent elections um, in January this year. She's from the Warto near eastern part of Sri Lanka. She quotes the candidate as saying, and I quote, where are all those women who said, you stand for elections, we are with you, we will support you. No one offered to come even one day to distribute leaflets. No one offered to arrange small meetings for me. No one offered to give a meal or even a bottle of water. What's the point of all these training programs when women from my own village don't come out to support me? Sarala, the author, then goes on to say about the candidate, she did not have the status, wealth, kin, or caste connections that would have assured her a place on those nomination lists. She had heard that women who were standing from mainstream parties had got party support and publicity. In her case, she had to get into personal debt just to print three banners for her campaign. These narratives, these experiences, these struggles, I think need to come in more to the mainstream, factor into the central discourse and analysis on equality, not just as examples and references in presentations, reports, and campaigns. And this takes me to the third question we were asked to look at, which are the key obstacles to political pol and policy changes that, we, that we foresee the obstacles. Um, so one of the obstacles I still see is this class elite distinction that continues to affect uh, movements for equality, and I strongly believe that the resolutions that are passed internationally in national laws, policies are made and implemented mainly thanks to strong and active women's movements. So bridging this gap is essential, I would say. I'm quite sort of running short of time, so I'll quickly go on to the other major obstacle that I see, which is the increased shift to right-wing politics and practice, not just in Europe and North America, but also in Africa and Asia, where there is a hardening of religious ethnic nationalisms and fundamentalisms. Some of this is, in some countries like India, is not new, but in many contexts there is novelty in it and the way it's happening is new. Women are often the first targets of such campaign and they are affected at multiple levels. As nationalist, ethnic, religious, cultural identity markers become more entrenched, women are forced from within their ethnic groups or within their identity groups to adhere to these and are bound by restrictive um, and strict social cultural norms, whilst partly as a consequence of this, they face attacks and are inhibited by those who identify with these groups. Some of this is, indirect, is direct and pose a threat to physical security, but a lot now takes place online, as most of us know. For example, when hate sermons by religious preachers against women political activists are recorded and publicized across Facebook. The social, cultural, and emotional consequences to women in these situations is severe. So I don't want to end on doom and gloom. Um, the activists in me takes heart in the string of women I meet to, and learn from in different countries, often going through similar challenges who are courageous, inspiring, and full of hope. I remember um, interviewing in Kenya a Maasai political activist who, having af who after having experienced FGM and married off as a child to be the third bride of a tribal leader and abandoned by her family, she had to run away from her husband's violence and through years engaging with a corrupt and inefficient judicial system, get the independence and freedom she needed to be able to fight for the rights of women. She's now a counselor 
and she addresses male community leaders which would have been previously unconceivable. Similarly, I have met women from Dalit communities, Dalit activists in India who have had to fight against policies and practices of untouchability even before attempting to enter politics and work. And of course, in Sri Lanka, Muslim women are currently engaged in a major campaign through a new constitutional process to reform a special law, interestingly applied only to Muslim women that enable child marriage and polygamy. So there's an exception for Muslim women who don't have to marry under the national law and this, new, this community law enables child marriage and polygamy. And we've had a fantastic movement of women activists and academics really uh, fighting against religious leaders, trying to bring changes to this law. This process started 30 years ago, but the strength of the campaign would have been unenvisageable half a century ago. So I think we have a lot to hope for and look forward to. Thank you. Thank you very much. a really um, great and uh, wide-ranging start to our, our program and a, a salutary reminder, I think, that um, the circumstances of um, uh, women remain highly variable um, and uh, their responses also remain highly variable across, across the world. Um, we will have the chance to uh, discuss and ask the panel questions and hopefully plenty of time for discussion um, at the end of the panel. Um, that's why I'm afraid I've got to keep the, the time reasonably brief for these very significant presentations that you get to hear. So I'm really pleased now to invite um, Dr. Anna Weeks to uh, speak. So um, Anna has uh, fairly recently joined us at the University of Bath in the political uh, uh, politics and international studies department. Um, and uh, she joined us directly from Harvard and um, it works on questions of gender quota laws and uh, uh, parliamentary politics, or sort of more, more about the political parties. Political parties and uh, um, has recently, very recently, in fact last week, was awarded um, a prize for a recent paper of hers by uh, the main professional body, the American Political Science Association. So we're really pleased and honored to have you here today. Portugal also passed a gender quota law in the mid-90s. Um, and this law requires only a third of candidates to be women, and the enforcement mechanisms are weaker. You can see the jump wasn't quite as large, but the slope still um, increases after that time. You can contrast this to countries like Sweden, which have had voluntary political party quotas um, since the 1970s. And you see they've been ahead of the pack for some time, and it's a slower um, but steady increase in the share of, of women in, in parliament. Um, and then finally, countries like the UK, um, or even below that uh, here, the US, where in the case of the UK, the Labour Party has sometimes um, informally instituted all women shortlists, which are, as I understand it, not um, in, in political party statute. Um, and the USA, we have no gender quotas at all. Um, so here, obviously, the growth has been slower and much less dramatic. Um, so this is good news that these quota laws can work. They have worked to increase the share of women and women's access to political power. Um, and that's a great thing for pure justice reasons alone, that women are half of the population, so we deserve um, more of the seats of parliament in power. But a natural question might be, well, so what? Do numbers of women um, in parliament translate into better representation of women's political preferences? And to answer that question, I think we need to understand what are women's political preferences. Um, so, 
one of the big challenges, I think, is actually identifying women's political preferences and convincing political parties to care about them. Um, so this slide shows, um, the figure shows the gender gaps in policy preferences. Um, again, in advanced democracies, and I think they might be quite different in developing democracies. Um, from 1985 to 2012, using data, uh, comparative survey data from the International uh, Social Survey Program, the ISSP data, and the figure shows that um, women prefer more spending on health, on retirement, on unemployment. They, they are more likely to say that it's the government's responsibility to provide a job and control prices compared to men. These gender gaps are in the order of four to six percentage points. Um, and that makes sense with what we know that um, women have moved left in recent decades. They're more likely to support left-wing parties and actually, um, Parties, party ID, partisan ID, is a stronger determinant of policy preferences on these issues than gender is. But the largest gender gaps um, that you see on this chart are to do with the issue of maternal employment. So the top question here, a preschool child is likely to suffer if his or her mother works. Women are much more likely to disagree with this statement than men on the order of nine percentage points. A working mother can have just as warm a relationship with his or her child. Again, women are much more progressive on this issue. Gender division of labor. A man's job is to make money. A woman's job is to take care of the home and family. Um, all of these uh, items about maternal employment are characterized by a gender gap in the order of eight to 10 percentage points. Um, and actually, these gaps persist across partisan identification. They're not explained by women being um, on average to the left of men. The average gap within, uh, among people who say they support right-wing parties is 9%. On this question of a preschool child is likely to suffer if his or her mother works, the average gap amongst people who say they vote for left-wing parties is 11%. Um, and they also persist across class, although they're larger amongst people who are higher educated, actually. Um, but they're still significant uh, amongst people who are self-identified in lower class levels or have lower levels of education. So we, women don't, are not homogenous. We have, um, there's a lot of hetero, heterogeneity in, in women's preferences, but there are some issues um, that, that women prefer compared to men. Um, and the good news is that everyone's getting more progressive on these issues of maternal employment over time. People are much more likely to disagree with a statement, for example, about a preschool child likely to suffer, but women are getting more progressive more quickly than men. So the gender gaps are actually increasing over time. Um, so to me, these, these gender gaps hint at uh, a large unmet demand for work family policies like childcare provision. And it, uh, it, it goes back to me to the second wave feminist slogan of, um, of the personal is political. So I wanna give you a personal example. Um, University of Bath, we have over 17,000 students here. Um, over 4,000 of these are postgraduate students who may be starting families, thinking about starting families themselves. We are the second largest employer in the region with over 3,000 employees. We have one child care center with space for 48 children. Um, and I'm a mom of two young children who are two and four who are lucky enough to get in eventually over time sort of in a piecemeal rate. Um, and this isn't just a problem at Bath. It's not just a problem in the UK. Um, it's even a problem in countries which actually invest much more of their GDP in childcare, like France, um, where waiting lists are still very long. Um, so childcare is one example, and, and paid parental leave is one example of an issue for which I think we have basically a political market failure, um, where 
um, the research shows that we do get more attention to these issues if there's more women in politics, um, but we're not at parity and we're certainly not there yet. Um, and we don't even have good comparative data, survey data on other issues that women may care disproportionately about, like sexual harassment and violence against women. So another challenge is actually um, in the data that we collect. Um, and I think that there are several other issues which may be characterized by a large gender gap, other um, issues that we may think of today as personal. Um, so how do we get still predominantly male politicians um, to care about these issues? Well, one of the big obstacles I would say is that politicians actually have incentives to avoid them. Um, they don't fit well within the core left-right um, class-based issues that most parties compete on still today. Um, they're newer issues. Men and women disagree over them, um, as I just showed you. And so they risk both, one, taking away attention from core party issues um, that parties are known for already and they want to continue to capitalize on issue ownership. And two, they risk causing more tensions within political parties and increasing factionalism. This might sound familiar, you know, as many parties are now warned against focusing on identity politics. I'm thinking of the Democratic Party in the U.S. in particular, or so-called identity politics, basically any form of identity that isn't class-based um, as being too divisive, right? So here's some examples um, from both the recent run-up to the election in Italy and then in the U.S., case on the right, um, they both suggest that um, there is a, you know, a broad unmet preference uh, for, they, these are both to do with childcare in particular, um, that, that politicians do in fact ignore. Um, so this really excellent article about the Italian election um, is about women's political preferences being ignored and, and the um, tweet on the right is about the crippling cost of childcare in the U.S. Um, so how can we get politicians to prioritize it? I would say, you know, it may sound cynical, but I think we should think about why politicians prioritize any, um, any issue. And the history of political science tells us that the proximate goal for any politician is always re-election. Um, so I would argue, and I show in my previous research on why um, male political party leaders will adopt gender quota laws, that they will be moved to care about these issues when, it's, um, when it benefits them strategically. So context matters, and we should think about, um, for example, if there's a, a rising left-wing party, it's much more likely that the mainstream political parties will be motivated to compete over gender equality issues. And I do worry, I think, like, like Farah, that the rise of far-right parties is going to have the opposite effect. Um, these far-right parties tend to be anti-feminist, um, espouse traditional family values, and so if, if you, instead you have the mainstream trying to compete for these voters, um, you know, I, I worry that issues to do with, with equality and women's preferences um, will go by the wayside. But one opportunity is um, when there is that context and when there is um, significant movement on the left to um, emphasize to political parties to compete on gender equality issues. But also that women's voices do matter. Um, and women are more likely to care about these issues. Um, I think just a wealth of research has shown that a politician's lived experiences do also matter, um, not just re-election, but they do have policies that they care about um, beyond gender, to, from race, sexuality, experience of certain health issues. Um, someone's lived experiences, you know, 
really deeply influence how they think about policies and how they prioritize them. So one recent, experience, one recent example um, that's really interesting to me is the Prime Minister of New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern, who recently had a baby in office and followed it up by passing legislation on families, including um, increased paid parental leave. So, um, and even, um, even uh, when they're not in the highest positions of leadership as MPs, women can act like any other faction within political parties, and they have in the past to negotiate and pressure parties um, to prioritize their interests. So I want to end on that positive note that we should be a little cynical and think about um, how to get parties to um, think that it's beneficial for them to address women's interests, but, but that also that women and their activism um, really absolutely matter. To, um, and have, in fact, pushed parties to prioritize their concerns in the past. Thank you very much. Okay, so um, uh, our next speaker is uh, Professor Sarah Childs, who um, is also a political scientist um, and uh, has published widely on uh, women in politics and uh, as well as um, uh, gender politics and is the author of the Good Parliament Report, which has been a very influential report on the um, UK for the UK Parliament about how to create a gender-sensitive, um, diversity-sensitive UK Parliament. And is current, she has therefore also been invited to sit as an advisor to the group that is taking up discussions around that report as well. So again, crossing these boundaries between the um, the academic research and then thinking about how that can make a difference in. Um, uh, real political development. So, Sarah. Thank you very much. I hope you can, uh, can you hear me okay? Because if I stand there, you're not going to see me because I'm little and even though I've put my high heels on, that machine <laughs> is going to hide me and you're not going to hear what I'm saying. Can you hear me at the back okay? Brilliant. So I'll start by saying I very much concur with Anna's presentation. I think we can observe increases in women's representation, but just be a bit careful that we don't get carried away with the onwards and upwards trends because there are pullbacks, there are declines, and sometimes there's a rather a, an assumption that if we just wait our turn, we'll get more numbers and we'll get to parity. And I think it's really important that we're aware that it's not automatic. I think she's absolutely right. The quotas are critical. It's interesting how evidence-based policy is kind of sexy until it's quotas when people who don't like quotas suddenly don't really want to talk about evidence-based policy, uh, which I find is quite reassuring to know that politics matters when we're discussing women, gender, and politics. The other thing I want to say, really, is that I'm going to shift the attention to the Westminster Parliament. Um, because I was seconded there for a period of time to write this report, um, that title covers lots of normative implications. But what I want to stress before I go on to the main points of the presentation is that it's a political document. You may read it and think that I am the most reformist feminist you can find. You might query just how much I am a feminist, perhaps, if you read it. I hope you don't. But just to be aware that the kinds of recommendations I'm making it are absolutely defined and designed to be implementable in a political context where there is resistance. And I'll come to that towards the end on that question about challenges and opportunities. So it's a technical report. It's a bit dry, so I wouldn't spend you know, an afternoon reading it. But what I tried to do was to identify what was wrong with Parliament. I kind of knew, right? But what I needed to do was be able to present to people in the House of Commons who might be, and a number were hostile. I did have to sit for an hour with a senior member of the government who patronised me with politeness for an hour, and I had to sit there hoping he wasn't going to throw me off the parliamentary estate. So I developed 43 recommendations. Anyone terribly clever will notice that there is one about infant feeding. 
it's not a recommendation, it becomes a bullet point in order to avoid more coverage in the Daily Mail that's un un unattractive. And I'll talk about the other recommendation that isn't a recommendation because I took it out at the point of thinking about what this report would look like. But let me just say something about the ongoing asymmetry in representation because when we look at national figures, we don't always look at how different parties are managing to select and elect. And if we look at the UK Parliament, what we see is party asymmetry. So the, many of the increases, as Anna suggested, relate to the use by the Labour Party of all women shortlists. And actually, the, the numbers, the percentages, are dependent on Labour doing well. So there's been some contagion, but the, but the logic of quotas has not been accepted by the Conservative Party. I also want to just mention questions of the motherhood gap. Because when we talk about women in politics, we're increasingly looking at the different kinds of women who are present in our politics, which women. And actually, what's quite interesting about what's happened in the last short period of time is actually the closing of the motherhood gap. I'm not going to talk you through those numbers, but we've got two now survey points with MPs. This is work I've done with Rosie Campbell. And actually, that motherhood gap amongst the newer cohorts has disappeared. And for me, that's very positive because it's another means by which to argue for changes in the workplace practices of Parliament because you now have a more diverse body. So we used to have to say, look, you need to change because you've, you've got a motherhood gap. Now it's the case that we've got more and more babies coming to people in Parliament who care about the fact they're having babies because there were always fathers in Parliament, but it never really caused too many problems with their work-life balance, but it does now. So let me move on to what I think is... Some of the problems and opportunities that we can actually act on this year, and I'm afraid this is my latest obsession, Section 106 of the Equality Act 2010. This is in place. This is, if you like, one of the most reformist, the gentlest asks, I think, we could ask of this current government this year. Uh, Nick, in his introduction, talked about celebrating suffrage. I think there's been quite a lot of celebration and commemorations and sash wearing. As yet, we don't have any legislative gains this year. And I feel if we've got 100 years since the Act, not only for women to vote, but women to stand in Parliament, we need to do something at the statutory level to increase and guarantee numbers. This is my little ask of the Governor. I reckon they've got a few more months, right? The passage of the Qualification of Women Act is November the 21st. I want them to commence Section 106. This has been passed. This requires political parties to provide candidate diversity data. This is the kind of transparency and data provision conservative governments and parties like. They like to nudge behaviour. Why are they not doing this? Feel free to write to your MP or Twitter or tweet on this, please, because there's going to be a campaign in November about this, a public campaign. You talked about activism, both of you, about how we can make our voices demand different kinds of politics. This is one of those that's going to happen later this year. Why is there a resistance to this? Is it because it's attached to a piece of legislation from an outgoing Labour government? Is it because, as the government says sometimes, that they're worried about the behaviour or, or the ability of small parties to do this? I don't usually care about what other parties do. Um, we need to ask them for this, right? This could be one of our gains in this centenary year. Okay, baby leave proxy voting. This is this afternoon's business in the House, except they're debating it, they're not voting on it. Okay. At the moment, there is no provision for maternity leave for members of parliament. You can negotiate with your whips, and the whips publicly will say, we will, we're very sympathetic. Until there's a vote on Brexit in November, when somebody is going to be asked to come back, having just had a baby. 
This, again, should be something that is provided for. It's been passed in the House, there's been a debate, but we need a vote. It might be that this afternoon the Leader of the House promises we will have that in October, but again, this is something we should demand of our Parliament as a workplace. Without it, you cannot be in favour of our diverse Parliament. That's the argument I'm going to be articulating in the next couple of days when this is in the media, and it is. It's in the, there's a letter in the Telegraph today. We need to move forward with this. This is really toxic as an idea. MPs job share. Lots of MPs don't like the idea of it, and I think that's because they have an imagined sense of their personal relationship with their constituents. But I think it's really worth us considering whether that's sufficient to deny some people access to being MPs because of their inability to do the job full-time. The work, again, I did with Rosie Campbell and the Fawcett Society on this was about seeing how it might enable women to participate in politics. But actually, the more we thought about this, the more we became aware that actually for some disabled people, this might be the only means by which they could come and act out a political right to participate. Because if you're really obsessed with becoming an MP, you could decide not to have children if you don't think it's compatible. Or you can delay entering Parliament. But if you can't do the job full-time, and we know how it's a 24-7 job, maybe we need MPs' job share. Okay, so let me just briefly talk about the obstacles. So I was embedded, seconded to the House. There was some overt resistance, that's for sure. But there was also a lot of support from the Speaker, from some of the very senior clerks. But also, I think, there is a sense in which our Parliament looks wrong. I don't know how many of you saw the examples recently with Joe Swinson's pairing breaking down, with disabled and sick MPs having to be wheeled through Parliament. There is, I think, uh, an appetite for some of these changes. And the institution is not unchanging. Here's some of the examples of reforms from the Good Parliament report that have been introduced in the last couple of years. So I think as feminists trying to change politics, we sometimes may need to enter into institutions and develop relationships with those we might not necessarily have thought about engaging with. We might have to be more reformist than we want. We might have to decide how and when we ask for certain things and not other things. And I think that raises political questions about our own sense of where red lines are and what we are prepared to do and to say and to what effect. And I think, as I reflect increasingly on this report, that I wonder whether I'm sufficiently accountable to others for what I wrote and what I decided counted as the good parliament. But what I do hope is that as a movement forward, we can see that institutions are not absolutely closed to feminist intervention. And sometimes it's costly in terms of careers, in terms of sleepless nights, in terms of your own politics to engage. But actually, if you create critical allies, I had a wonderful feminist in residence. I had a kind of secret senior male clerk, it's not very secret anymore, who advised me. I had MPs panels who would give me insights to the, po the politics of the institution. I had officials from across the House helping me. And the Speaker has created a new group, the Commons Reference Group on Representation and Inclusion. You can look at it on the website. And they're taking this forward, and they're the actors that have enabled these changes. And I think that's the most positive thing, is that we can demand our institutions to change. And it's not always easy, but it's worth asking.
Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Sarah. Um, so we're moving now from uh, uh, a question of how to act politically inside an institution to um, uh, Rita Segal, who has, has made a, a life's work of political activism and um, uh, is, acts as an influential public intellectual. It's great pleasure to have you here with us. So, Rita, uh, Gita, I'm so sorry. Man, is somebody's name and not the others, I'm really sorry. <laughs> um, Gita is the founder for the Centre of Secular Space, um, where she's currently working on um, hate crimes against atheists and the hostile environment for migrants, so I imagine it's been a busy summer. And um, has a long history of working uh, as a writer and as a filmmaker, and uh, was originally the, one of the founder members of South All Black Sisters, a very influential uh, feminist group um, uh, working in South London. So, please. Um, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here, um, and a particular pleasure to be uh, asked to speak at Bath, um, because another part of the university has spent quite a lot of time uh, denouncing me as an imperial, imperialist feminist and um, uh, denouncing people I work with, uh, such as ex-Muslims, um, in the name of defending um, uh, people against uh, uh, unreasonable government counter-terror policies, uh, actually defends the work of religious fundamentalists and attacks secularists working on these issues. And I think those are profound issues for equality generally and for um, actually the achievement of universal human rights, which um, uh, I think uh, Farah sketched uh, uh, brilliantly in her talk, and I, uh, my remarks are going to be um, uh, an, a, a sort of uh, narrower, a narrow frame, but actually taking off from where, where you, uh, what you started to talk about. So. Um, and I agree that I don't think gender equality would be my benchmark mm -hmm. either, but since that was the, the frame, I've, I've put my talk in that frame. So it's about the issue of torture I, I want to talk about today and how that relates for the struggle for universal human rights. At a time when the government is threatening to withdraw from human rights commitments on the one hand, and when human rights, and particularly the human rights of women, are attacked as Western, it is particularly important to recall that the drafting of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and indeed many later instruments, was a result of struggles against imperialism, racism, and for gender equality in many countries around the world. Um, and the particular person I want to recall is Hansa Mehta, who was on the drafting committee of the Universal Declaration. Uh, she went to uh, uh, the UN with a women's charter uh, in her pocket that had emerged from the anti-colonial struggle in India and which demanded um, a universal civil code, um, marriage at full age that must be monogamous, something that we're still fighting for and is very central uh, to my theme, um, uh, labor rights, uh, uh, removing the stigma of illegitimacy. Uh, in fact, an extremely radical document uh, developed um, sort of around the 1930s by Indian women. And uh, when she uh, came to New York to take part in the drafting, she uh, insisted and gained uh, 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 an article in the Universal Declaration on the right to choice in marriage. Um, 
And I think people don't now realize how revolutionary that demand was because it was not part of the lexicon of uh, civil rights discourse at the time. Uh, Eleanor Roosevelt considered it quite vulgar to talk about marriage. Uh, it wasn't, you know, people understood freedom of religion, they understood freedom of expression, uh, they understood many things that we, we now recognize as essential to the human rights discourse, but uh, the right to choice in marriage was um, really quite weird, and it wasn't something invented by Western feminists, it was something that people who dealt with this all the time knew that they had to deal with. There's a discourse arisen that uh, human rights didn't deal with violence against women until well into the 90s, uh, with uh, the Declaration on the Elimination of Violence Against Women. Uh, but the fact is that feminists fighting uh, for this choice in marriage knew that they were fighting against the rape of little girls, the murder of children, um, and the release of women from uh, extremely oppressive circumstances. Um, at the time, it was also uh, foundationally an intersectional movement. I mean, we didn't have those words but uh, uh, the women at the, at the, at the um, founding, the Indian women at the founding of the UN, one of whom was uh, my grandmother, Vijay Lakshmi Pandit, fought on issues of racism, colonialism, uh, uh, as, as, as well as on issues like marriage rights and specific rights for women. And in fact, they came together because the marriage uh, article was an article that challenged uh, racial segregation laws. So it challenged Jim Crow laws in the US and it challenged racial segregation laws in you know, the uh, colonies around the world, uh, as well as challenging caste laws um, and allowing inter-caste uh, inter marriages and inter-religious marriage. Uh, you know, uh, even if it, it didn't say so in the, in the language, but I mean, that, that's what it was about and people knew that's what it was about. And that's relevant to us here now uh, today, uh, very specifically, because one of the issues that has been fought about over the last few years and which has just suffered a huge defeat is the, uh, um, is the uh, including of caste discrimination, uh, caste as a protected characteristic in the Equality Act. Now, the Hindu right movement in this country enjoys enormous protection and political support across the political spectrum uh, uh, in the Conservative Party and in the Labour Party. It also enjoy, has opposition to it from uh, across the political spectrum, but it, more importantly, it enjoys support, and um, it has managed to fend off the government actually making this a protected characteristic, and the government has sort of backed off and said that it, it needs... This issue needs, uh, first they tried to kick it into the long grass and asked for research and so on to be done on it, then they backed off all of that. And then they said, uh, well, uh, what's likely to happen now is that they, they're going to say it has to be fought on a case-by-case -case basis with case law, which is much harder than if it was already recognized as a protected characteristic. Um, so that's one issue where uh, marriage is important. The other issue is the way in which um, the... Uh, that, that these rights are under threat is because of the British government's insistence on involving religious groups, in, inevitably fundamentalist religious groups in developing services for women. So the choice increasingly seems to be between services delivered by security company, because that's also happening, uh, and services delivered by fundamentalists. And I think 
that the women's sector response to both these threats has been actually pretty abysmal. One is really to develop a response, uh, a policy response across the women's sector before we can actually argue what we want to argue to the government, is to actually have a response from within the women's sector itself that isn't just looking for small concessions here and there, which, which Theresa May wants to look good on some aspect of this disastrous government and is willing to make very tiny concessions, for instance, in the matter of upskirting on, on uh, legislation on upskirting on women's rights. Uh, and we really need to think about not allowing the government to get away with, with these minor concessions, but actually challenging the commissioning system on the one hand um, and the hostile environment uh, on the other. Um, sorry, I'm, uh, I'm sort of rushing through some of this. Um, so to get to, back to the issue of torture, uh, this is a, a double issue because torture uh, is an absolute prohibition in international law. And uh, it's a prohibition, in, there's no excuse for it in time of war, uh, uh, in terms of a terrorist threat, uh, and increasingly as women have fought to uh, get definitions of torture to be included as part of uh, to, to have rape recognized as a form of torture and to have uh, definitions of torture uh, understood in context of uh, intimate violence. But what's happened, I think, again with the women's sector is it's, it's um, remember the definition in terms of intimate and partner violence or uh, sexual harassment and those sorts of things and forgotten that the state is often uh, uh, the perpetrator of torture and that there are in this country thousands and thousands of people who have fled violence from other countries and they've, uh, they've experienced violence uh, in contexts of conflict which could be of armed militias or the state or quite often both, prison guards, border guards, um, armies, uh, armed militias, armed groups, etc. Et so they've experienced massive violence, and yet those are the very people who are being put in immigration detention. And immigration detention is something that the women's movement has singularly and absolutely failed to challenge as a form of arbitrary deprivation of liberty and a form of cruel, inhuman, and degrading treatment and torture, and has even failed to challenge the fact that the government's own guidelines uh, say that people who've experienced torture in other contexts should not be held in immigration detention. And we actually have the extraordinary situation that the, the inspector of prisons, who is a former uh, senior counterterrorism cop, uh, is making a stronger critique of the government, uh, not the former inspector, the current inspector of prisons, who is a former counterterrorism cop, is making a stronger criticism of the government than much of the women's sector is doing. The women's sector, some of it has got as far as saying, that the hostile environment uh, uh, is used by abusive husbands as a way of um, keeping them within, trapped within uh, domestic violence situations, which is, of course, true, but it hasn't actually, uh, and, the, and the threat of immigration detention is, is hung over women's heads who have insecure immigration status, but it hasn't actually criticized the immigration detention system itself as much as uh, the government's own experts have done. Uh, Stephen Shaw, who is a government expert on, who's done two major reports on immigration detention, and um, uh, uh, as I said, the inspector of prisons uh, and other people. This is actually, I think, quite an extraordinary situation. Um, 
so sorry i'm just i'm just rushing through my notes uh, um I think one of the reasons for this, uh, f uh, th 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 I think there are a number of reasons why this hasn't happened. One is, I think, uh, as I said, that the, the women's sector feels under threat, is under threat. Uh, a lot of refuges have closed. Um, uh, 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 autonomous women's um, organizations are shutting down. The government is in insisting on entirely gender-neutral services that are delivered. Uh, at a lower, lower, uh, lower and lower level so that it's housing associations, security companies, and so on is, uh, are stepping into areas that have been run uh, by w the women's sector. And indeed, the immigration detention estate itself, the Home Office is now arguing more and more boldly, fulfills the needs of a refuge, uh, has actually argued this in court cases, where that a woman's needs for psychological care, um, health care, et cetera, et cetera, are met in the immigration detention system as well as they might be met outside in a refuge. It is shocking how much uh, the, 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 the appalling level of the, of, of, of the arguments that are being put forward uh, by government lawyers uh, to people uh, trying to get bail, for instance, for immigration detainees uh, with, with very, very little um, notice by any other sector. And actually, this is one area where actually Parliament itself comes out quite well in that the Health Committee, um, uh, that we're headed by a Tory MP, uh, Sarah Wollaston, who's a doctor, came out very strongly against government's um, policies on the NHS demanding uh, an MOU. Uh, uh, there had been an MOU signed between the Home Office and, and the NHS. Um, uh, to report uh, people for, uh, on, on the grounds of their immigration status and so on. Sarah Wollaston came out very strongly against that. Parliament has uh, commissioned inquiries into uh, the detention estate and uh, looked at conditions of uh, refugees in, in, uh, in housing and things like that. Uh, so I feel that Parliament is actually quietly doing its job, uh, sometimes uh, across party, that actually... Uh, as a movement, we as feminists are failing to uh, take this up. Um, and, and I think the human rights movement, by, by narrowing what they meant by torture, in, in the wake of 9-11, when there was a massive attack on the torture standard, as uh, everyone will remember, uh, you know, Guantanamo Bay was opened, uh, uh, Bush signed um, uh, legislation uh, uh, or executive orders uh, allowing uh, legalizing torture, in effect, uh, there was a huge response from the human rights movement. It was, it was right to fight that. Um, but what they did, uh, and I knew this from my work as head of the gender unit at Amnesty, was that we really had to struggle to get women's rights issues recognized within the framework of torture, uh, uh, rather than as a soft law uh, relating to um, uh, relating to uh, to that, because the, the hard law, the absolute prohibition on torture, became, became reduced to uh, terror suspects. And in fact, I remember um, uh, the Sri Lanka team fighting to get the issue of torture in Sri Lanka in the context of the civil war being put on a panel in Geneva, an amnesty panel in Geneva, which wanted to deal solely with terror suspects and forget dealing with issues like uh, the absolute prohibition on abortion. I had, I had to fight very hard to get uh, the torture committee uh, to, uh, uh, to get a submission in, uh, by amnesty into the torture uh, committee on the absolute prohibition where women were actually would have died uh, 
uh, from uh, uh, something that could be fixed uh, because doctors would refuse to treat them in the course of a miscarriage, uh, um, even let alone uh, give them an, uh, uh, an abortion that they needed. Um, and uh, this caused a huge sort of internal fuss within amnesty. So there was this narrowing of the framework of torture, and that has played out within the women's movement of seeing it only in the context of intimate partner violence and, and wanting to look at issues, and I'm not saying that these aren't important issues and shouldn't be looked at, but looking at issues of sexual harassment, upskirting, and so on, all of which are important, but I don't think that they bear the weight of an absolute deprivation of liberty, which is uh, a form of cruel and inhuman and degrading treatment and torture that is being done to people who themselves have been tortured again and again and again. And I think if we don't take that up as a policy issue, we bear a huge responsibility for not taking on both the hostile environment and the spread of religious fundamentalism by uh, the, the uh, sins of both omission and commission of this government. Thank you. Thank you very much. So that was a, thank you very much, and um, that was a very wide-ranging panel. I've written down a, a number of kind of comments. To, it seems to me that we've covered questions of how politics is done in the legislature, so in Parliament, through legislation, through informal political practice, through campaigning, through um, agenda setting, through changing, changing the agendas of meetings, yeah? um, but also this question of policy, so the importance of how policy itself is politicised and we need to see it as, as having doing political work, that the kinds of gender quota policies we have, um, whether uh, it, gender equality laws and so on, um, also all play a role in shaping um, uh, uh, gender politics. I was particularly intrigued to um, see that uh, at least two of our panel members um, quite correctly, I think, uh, questioned the framing of this panel around just around questions of equality. Um, uh, I think questions of emancipation, for example, might also be something that we might like to address. It seems to me that there are bigger questions at stake that perhaps underpin the, the, the issue of equality. But we'd like to open out for a, for a, a wide-ranging discussion, at least as wide-ranging as the um, uh, panel contributions. Um, and we have about 15, perhaps 20 minutes for discussion. So if anyone would like to start us off. Yeah, in the middle. Um, so two of you talked about uh, gender quotas in Parliament. Um, but in the title for um, this panel, uh, it said about um, the workplace as well. Um, and I think, obviously, there are lots of arguments in terms of representation in Parliament about why having gender quotas there might be um, a particularly good idea. But I was interested if you thought um, that translated across to the workplace, if you think um, there should be employment rules, including uh, gender quotas, or if you think that would be overstepping the bounds, I suppose. Yeah, I think all the research um, shows that they work and they're, um, they're not a bad thing. 
in terms of the bottom line for a company. Um, so there's been some mixed results on the implementation of corporate board quotas in Norway, Italy, et cetera. Um, and I, I think that because women's role in the, work, in the workplace is deeply connected to their political power as well, it would be an important step. Um, they, you know, this is the training ground uh, often for for politicians too. So, um, so you know, I, I think there are parallels. Um, and uh, personally, I think that I would be in favor of yeah increased legislation on that front as well. I think what's interesting is is whether we think about why they're necessary. And, and Anne Phillips, one of the pioneering gender and politics scholars, all sort of said if, if, if distributions are skewed, did it suggest that there are obstacles? And one of the flip sides when people are opposing you when you advocate quotas is what about men in primary schools as teachers? And I always kind of throw it back at them and say, well, actually, if that requires quotas to ensure men do some of the work that perhaps they don't currently do, that might make society better too. So I think the big, the, the big question we could take is what are we trying to achieve and, and to what extent do quotas function as a mechanism to break down obstacles of access? And when you frame it like that, then you might be prepared to think about it more broadly and see it as actually a positive intervention to change the way in which historical patterns of divisions of labor actually have played out, which maybe links back to that historical uh, opening keynote. Thank you very much. Um, and uh, I've got one here and one at the back. Thank you. Uh, many of you uh, mentioned this relationship between what happens in the family, in the workplace, and in politics, and how they're all interacting. But what about the role of education in schools? As a, as a very major place where gender norms are perpetuated or challenged, and whether that's to be in the loop of the workplace, politics, and, and the family. Sure, we'll start on this side of the table for that one. Three. Um, actually, I'd quite like to just respond to the previous question as well. Please. And this is not, it's not my area of research, but just through my practical experiences and uh, working in certain contexts. Um, I think that it's important, that also picking up from the previous presentation, that uh, women are really supported. It's not just about increasing the work, number of women into the workforce, if that kind of the domestic role that they are expected to play or st that they still have to play is, uh, is kind of managed in some way because if we can increase the number of jobs that women get in companies and organizations, but if they can't still balance it or their men are not willing to balance it with them in the domestic front, I'm not really sure it's a great solution for women. Um, this has been the first week of my, my son has just started school and this is the first week for him and it's been incredibly challenging. School starts for him at 10, 10 to 9 and finishes at 3.30. And it just doesn't make sense. If, so if I can't fit that kind of family domestic role, and I do have a great opportunity to join a company because they have a quota system, it doesn't really make sense as a solution for me. And also, I'm quite an advocate of recognizing financially and in terms of uh, position and status, the other roles women play, even if it's not going out to work. Um, so those are just two points. In terms of education, yes, I think it's extremely important. Um, and I, I totally agree with you that it's a starting point. Uh, schools continue to, you know, in, in many ways, maintain these gender roles. I, I, so 
I took my little boy with me to, to, uh, to the conflict-affected areas of Sri Lanka, and um, he spent two years there, and suddenly he's come back here, and he's talking about guns and bombs, which he never talked about while living in a conflict-affected areas, and girls, um, girls' toys and boys' toys and princess dresses for girls. <laughs> and it's just, it's starting at, like, nursery. It's, been, uh, it's probably obvious in some context, but when you kind of be no out of it and you come to it, you recognize it, it is quite appalling how at such an early stage they get very accustomed to it. This is, you know, he listens to my music and says, this is girls' music. <laughs> so where are you getting this from? So I do agree with you that it has to start at a very early early age, and the school system is certainly quite responsible for it. Um, I might come back with more thoughts, but I'll, I'll yes, stop of course, there. Of course. Does anyone else want to? Yeah, it, I mean, yes, of course. Uh, education is, is uh, extremely important. And I think the problem of trying to work out what is inclusive is, is quite difficult. Uh, at the moment, given given the kind of discourses there are around these things. So, for instance, um, a, a state primary school in London, which is uh, could be considered one of the most inclusive schools in the country because it's not an academy, it's a normal state primary school which had, uh, uh, you know, uh, very high levels of free school meals and all the indicators of social deprivation, uh, a high uh, population BAME, uh, population as well as uh, you know, newly arrived migrants and so on, and yet achieve some of the best results in the country with all of that. Now they decided that they would ban hijabs on girls under eight as part of their dress code, and they would ban fasting across this primary school because children were fainting from having, uh, being fasting for 18 hours a day. I consider that an inclusive policy because it was saying that we are not going to let a small minority of Muslim girls who are wearing the hijab uh, be uh, isolated from the rest of the school. And we're not going to allow our kids' results and their well-being to be affected, generally the children across the school, by having fasting imposed on them, which, which would not happen to children that young in traditional Muslim societies. This is a sign of growing fundamentalism that four-year-old girls are wearing hijab and, and uh, children are being forced to fast in primary school. Uh, and yet, there were academics signing petitions against this school. There was an Asian woman from a Sikh background, a secular woman who was the headmistress, the head teacher. There was a deputy head who was a hijab-wearing Muslim. And, and there was uh, a chair of governors who was a Muslim man who was forced to resign over his support for this policy. So that is actually one of the examples of what we are facing who are willing to look at issues of inclusion and take into account issues of religious fundamentalism as well. And in fact, one of the questions I'd like to ask Sarah, which uh, uh, I'm, I'm sure would be hard to have put it, I haven't read your report, I've read Sarah, in spite of having now been on a panel with you for the second time and being very <laughs> supportive of your work and of reformist feminist work and all the rest of it. But uh, the fact is that the British Parliament is a rare parliament that allows people to sit in it, that is the House of Lords, purely on the basis of religious affiliation. The bishops, mm -hmm. first of all, and then off the back of the bishops, in an equal opportunities policy, mm -hmm. you get other religious uh, leaders being included as well. 
uh, I don't think we can have a good parliament <laughs> until we abolish that and until we disestablish the church of England. And I don't think we can really deal with gender because what's happening is that as, as the Church of England loses control, it looks to other alliances with other re religious groups in order to maintain its control and therefore to support Orthodox Jews against the school inspectors, to keep its control on the school system, uh, and so on. And I think underlying that is the issue of religious fundamentalism across all the religions. Yeah, just briefly, I think that's a, an excellent question about education, and particularly I'm thinking of it as a place where, you know, norms are, continue to be um, embedded and, and people get socialized. And a lot of the literature on political ambition um, is very much that it starts very young and that girls are, are talked to and, and encouraged or rather not encouraged to run for offices at a very young age, and that happens both at home and at schools. And I think, um, you know, one of the really interesting areas for research and for future growth is when they get to the stage of universities. Um, and at least in the U.S., you know, you, you can choose your major when you get there. Here, it may, preferences may form, you know, have to form a little bit earlier. But I think part of the problem is you don't see women at high levels um, in, the, in academia at, at the same level of professorships, particularly women of color. Um, and so if women can't imagine themselves and see themselves as um, succeeding in this role and see this as something that, that women do, then, then that's also a problem that keeps perpetuating. I would just briefly respond to, to Gita's point. Yes, I mean, the Good Parliament Report is, 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 is badly titled, even though it was titled for, for very good reasons, I'd like to think, because it doesn't address the House of Lords. I was only looking at the House of Commons, but I would not in any way disagree with you that, particularly until very recently, reserving seats that only could be filled by men and religious men is highly problematic. So I'm, the report does not look at the House of Lords, but I don't disagree with you. Okay, so you have a Thank you for the presentation. Just one question. Where do you place the role of queer women in politics? The House of Commons is proud to advertise itself as the gayest parliament in the world. But I think in many ways those issues, those issues around intersectionality and which women get to access politics and on what basis um, is actually quite new to the study of politics and the kind of identities. And I would refer very much back to the point you were making about identity politics and the way in which in lots of um, instances any concern with people's identity and that being a reason to be in politics is increasingly under attack other, as you said, than the questions of class. So in all sorts of ways, that's quite a new area of study. There's increasingly master's dissertations, PhDs being done now on the way in which having a different kind of identity may impact on how you behave and what you care about, what you advocate, what you campaign on within parliaments. That's still quite an emerging and burgeoning um, area of research globally. Um, I, would, I also feel quite strongly that we have issues around quotas and trans politics that have yet to be worked out. Yeah, I'll just add briefly to that, that um, it, from the data I've seen, which is largely Andrew Reynolds' work, mm -hmm. um, it's very rare. It's much more common to see gay men in politics so far. But I think that may be changing, um, and particularly in the U.S. in the you know current cycle where we have almost 500 women candidates, many of whom are um, are out. Would you like to respond to that question? 
I, I'm just trying to think through some of the communities I've worked with, and I cannot, I cannot imagine queer women having any opportunity in those in certain contexts that I have worked in. I think that there are movements and groups, and certainly, uh, you know, in capital cities, advocating for this. But this goes back to my point of elitism. I think there are there are certain uh, I, there's there's within a certain group they can come out and speak about it and um, campaign for it. But when I think of like Northern Sri Lanka or conflict affected areas that I have worked on, it's so difficult. It's so difficult for them to survive in their own context, in their communities, to be seen, to be able to talk about it. Um, you know, I've recorded testimonies of women who have gone through torture, violence, terrible, terrible uh, incidents and no support because you have to think of the kind of general uh, you know, impunity that exists in these societies. I can't imagine um, them being able to come forward and be, work, be represented in politics. We had a number of hands. Oh, I'm sorry. Just, yeah, just very quickly, I mean, uh, of course, queer is also now loaded. I mean, some people yes. would not see themselves as queer, but as lesbians or there's a way. But, but uh, certainly in South Asia now, that there is recognition as a third gender for trans people, and there are women who've come out as, uh, uh, I mean, stood in local government elections and so on. Um, uh, one achieved uh, the ability to, to vote and to have uh, citizen rights, but also... Uh, to stand for election, and of course, the hidden contribution of uh, women who are part of the broad LGBT community has always been there. I mean, uh, they've been at, always at the forefront of the women's movement and of making policy, if not in legislative positions, and some even in legislative positions. And I think we should actually acknowledge here is the landmark legislation passed by the Supreme Court in India, uh, which overturned the um, uh, the uh, uh, criminalization of homosexuality uh, in India, which is uh, an extraordinary uh, uh, piece of campaigning, uh, culmination of very, very long campaigns by people in the face of a Hindu fundamentalist government. The Supreme Court has upheld both a very uh, positive, forward-thinking notion of uh, the role of constitutional law and the protection of universal human rights uh, in social and political rights, uh, social and economic rights, as you mentioned before, as well as civil and political rights through uh, this piece of legislation, and also uh, another uh, companion piece that came earlier on privacy. And I think that's important. And the queer communities broadly uh, identified have played a huge part in that. And of course, they're active in Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Sri Lanka, even though they're uh, heavily beleaguered and uh, being murdered and so on, but they're still act active. I just want to quickly add that the legislation, that the victory in India, the Supreme Court victory has made, uh, has created a lot of momentum in other, in other countries in South Asia, so it offers a lot of hope, and, and I think it's a, it's, a, it's a huge success. It's enabled, it's enabled uh, activists working on this issue not just to challenge, as uh, Gita was saying, the fundamentalist side of it, but also that human rights is a Western uh, kind of comes from a Western background and has, is a, as a form of Western discourse because now we have India that has uh, passed this legislation, so it's fantastic. Great, thank you. I'm aware that we started a little late, so, and I, there are a number of people who had their um, hands up, so I'd like to take a couple of last questions, if I may. 
I would please request the panel to keep their responses brief so we can also still have lunch in good time. So we have, um, I have two on that side and we'll take them together. Um, my question is in relation to uh, Dr. Weeks's presentation in relation of um, kind of women having very different um, kind of um, political issues that they care about and things. Um, why do you think that although they, obviously the research shows that women have those um, different issues that they care about more than men, why do you think it whenever political parties, well at least from my experience, political parties try and focus more on kind of um, the experiences of women or these kind of women's issues, um, that comes across negatively and even women themselves paint it as negatively. So in my head I think of kind of um, kind of um, the Feminist Initiative Party in Sweden or um, kind of Labour's Pink Bus in the United Kingdom in 2015, those comes across negatively. I wonder why, you, even from women, why you think that would necessarily problem. Okay, we have one last question at the top on the right. So my question related to, um, sort of joined a couple of things. There's the quota issue where we're saying, you know, women um, having more access to these high level jobs and yet um, mothers here, even on the panel and myself, um, feel the pressure to pick kids up at 3.30 in the afternoon. And the sort of gender um, norms that my children are gaining at school where my, my daughter's asking me to be a proper woman and a proper mother and pick her up like the other mums. You know, why does daddy have to do it sometimes or she have to go to daycare? Where my husband would like more, um, more freedom to have those roles but refuses to take on the part-time work because he doesn't want to have to do all the rubbish stuff women are expected to do as a norm, right? So do you think there's enough being done to enable this balance where we're fighting for women to have these higher paid jobs but yet we're not fighting enough for men in those higher paid jobs to have the freedom to take on the family load. Okay, so if we start, Anna, because there was a question specifically to you, and then maybe some brief closing comments in response to the question. Sure. So the question was, um, why are women's issues seen to be a negative or divisive thing um, by parties? Um, and I think it goes back to a lot of the discussion and the other question that was just asked about um, division of labor in the household. I think these are issues that divide men and women, and even we would think maybe millennial men do want to take on some of that care. Actually, the research shows when they get a little bit older and have children, those gaps are still there. And they don't, you know, um, it's hard to take care of young children. And, um, and so I think that it's much more appealing for political parties to focus on, on something like jobs or education where um, everyone in their constituency can benefit. Um, so we, I think this is a household level conflict. And it's it's not getting better, be, um, and we don't have the because we don't have the structures in place, and work is structured such that it's very difficult to have a dual um, income family as it is today. Um, so, you know, parties would just much rather focus on issues that unite their constituency. I I always wonder why men don't make more of a demand for equal parental rights. Right? Because if we had law that said there was equal maternity and paternity like rights and it was paid properly, then we'd know whether men actually did want to do what some men say they want to do, which is do more. And I'd, let's take the Honourable um, 
interpretation, which is they do, but the law does not permit it. So let's change the law. But in order to change laws, you either need an enlightened legislature and government, or you need a demand from the population for it. It seems to me that there's been a singular failure to demand an equalisation of access to parental rights, and particularly pay, in a country where you have a gendered uh, paid labour market. And until that happens, those structural inequalities which make it's easier for women, and I put those in inverted commas, to do the caring and take the kids to work and the men not to have to because you know, they are unlikely to get the same rights at work, then things really won't change. And for me, that's, that's one of the really big obstacles. We've got to change the legislative framework which presumes gender divisions of labour in the home around childcare, and particularly baby care, you know, care by the mother. I'll stop just because we're running out of time. Yeah, thank you. I think just to add to the, the previous response, I'm, I'm a fervent believer in the legislative changes, but I want to take this back to where I started about bringing in the perspectives, not just uh, as bullet points, but you know to really bring in the perspectives of, of women who can't be part of this discussion, who can't make it here, who do, may not speak English, uh, into these kind of to, into our analysis, and I think uh, certainly yes, the legislative changes make a difference. But there is also still in many parts of the world cultural shifts that have to take place, and with this uh, switch to more kind of religious right wing fundamentalisms, it's getting harder and harder for women within their communities to challenge those uh, gender stereotypes and those roles that now are emphasized as being part of their religious or ethnic or national identity. So I think we need to always remember that there is still that struggle that exists in, in some part of the world. And I think I'll just stop there. Um, I think from my perspective, uh, the, this issue of uh, at the level of the home, um, the, the, the arguments about the division of labor and so on, I think I actually I wouldn't say they're worse. They, they've kind of fallen off the agenda. And I see younger women actually just coping, just trying to cope, you know. Um, uh, and these are, these are women in marriages. I mean, I'm not even, let's not even go where, you, you know, to single women bringing up children on their own, and which I largely had to do. But women who are actually in a couple and are still taking much of the burden. They have perfectly nice husbands. These are not women who are being oppressed within their marriages. But they're doing the work. And it's, it's not an issue. And I actually think of my generation and, and the, the men and women that I knew in India, and I think actually the, those men took on a greater share of the burden. They quite often were better cooks uh, than the women uh, who, who spent their lives escaping the kitchen. And, uh, you know, they, and, and, and they, did, they did a lot of the care work uh, of the children because it was such a central part of of the feminist movement when we were growing up. It was, it, was, uh, it was absolutely axiomatic, and men were put under pressure. And I think women have just given up that struggle because it's too damned hard at the moment. So that's one thing. But the other thing, I think, our mention of the issues around uh, legislative change is that it's not always done in parliament. I mean, movements have, done, have made changes outside. So they've made social change, and they make legal changes sometimes in the face of the failures of parliament. And I think we always have to remember that, that whether it's inside parliament or outside parliament, it's really not going to come unless there's absolutely concerted pressure that's uh, put 
uh, on the legislatures and on everybody to change. Thank you. Great moment to close. Thank you.